0: Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview.
1: Stolen art, Nazi plunder, and near-perfect forgeries are often at the center of a Hollywood blockbuster but the world of illegal art is actually a multi-billion dollar industry, connecting rich dealers, organized crime, and some of the most reputable museums in the world. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm your host, Joel Cohen. Today we'll be talking about illegal art, and our guest is an expert in the field. Dan Levy, a principal at McCool Smith in New York, and a former prosecutor for the Southern District of New York, where he worked for over 11 years. Dan, welcome to Talks on Law. Thank you, I'm glad to be here. Maybe we can start a little bit with your introduction to the field. How were you
0: first connected to the illegal art world? My introduction to this area came as a result of a case that I worked on for a year or so, two years actually, um, relating to some works of art that were sold by a gallery in New York, the Nodler Gallery, that turned out to be fake. Um, And the story starts in the late 90s. Works start to trickle into the gallery literally pulled out of the back of a car um, by unbelievable artists. artists Jackson right. Pollock, Mark Rothko, Willem de Kooning, Robert Motherwell. I mean these are giants of 20th century art. Some of the most expensive painters as well. Uh, some of the most expensive and whose who's, who's um, Body of work is extremely well documented, and that figures into the story very prominently because slowly but surely over time, about 60 works were brought by a Long Island art dealer named Glafira Rosales into the Nodler Gallery, which was arguably the most prestigious art gallery in the United States that had existed since before 1900. An um, Upper East Side institution. An Upper East Side, a major institution in the art dealing world. And it turns out that all the works that Glafira Rosales brought into that gallery and another gallery to be sold were fake. Now the interesting thing about it is um, they weren't fake in the sense that they were copies of works of art that existed. They purported to be by all of those great artists and they purported to be works that had never been exhibited before. So these were in in some ways originals? In some ways they were originals and in fact they were original in the sense that they were painted by um, an artist named Pai Shen at his house in Queens. Pai Shen was a Chinese artist who had emigrated to the United States from China. He had a bit of a minor art career in China himself and tried to restart his career here in the United States, didn't, and got into this business together with a companion of Cliff Vera Rosales named Jose Bergantinos. And the works were brought into the gallery and slowly but surely they were sold. The proceeds... So here t- we're talking about art fraud, and so we'll get into some of the other kinds, but this is this is outright art fraud. They were represented by Glafira Rosales to have been painted by these artists. They were represented by the gallery to have been painted by these artists, and they were not. There was no. one master forger behind all of There them. was one master, not so much forger in the sense of a copy of a real work, a mm-hmm. forger in the sense of forging the style of a particular artist. So here we're talking about brushstrokes or? Brushstrokes and the canvases. Canvas. And the masonite, which is the hard back that sometimes canvases are mounted on, um, and um, and the paints and the paints themselves. Yeah, um, ultimately, the works that were sold by the galleries to end purchasers were sold for about eighty plus million dollars. What did you do in this case? We had to put the lie to Glafira Rosales' story and ultimately to the story that the the gallery itself told to others, which is that the works were owned by a a mysterious Swiss-Mexican collector um, who did not want to be identified, um, and that the works had been purchased via particular people from the artists themselves. Artists did, in some cases, sell works directly to people or give works as gifts, Um, but not these works. These works were painted in Queens, and they're masterful fakes. They're masterful fakes. Many people who were experts in these particular artists were fooled by these these works. They're masterful. So this, this brings up a number of questions, one of
1: which is what it is to forge art, what it is to be an original, and then how one goes about clamping
0: down on that fraud. Well, and, and the sort of preliminary step to clamping down on that fraud is authenticating a particular work, right? Galleries have a role to play in that. Um, in this particular case, the Nodler Gallery um, said things to um, purchasers, either end purchasers or to sometimes the agents who work on behalf of purchasers about the provenance of the particular So they were knowis- knowingly misrepresenting um, what has been alleged in the civil litigation is that they were knowingly misrepresenting the provenance. Um, and just for us non-art experts, provenance is the history of the. Of the the work. history of the ownership of uh, of a particular work, and typically, you can, if you look at a catalog, you can see, catalog in an auction, for example, you can see, private collection, museum or what the artist himself or It herself. traces itself back to the creation. Theoretically, you should be able to put it all the way back into the artist's studio. Theoretically, you don't necessarily have all the tools at your disposal to be able to do that. Um, and here's a perfect example of sort of being able to trace it back to the artist studio himself. There's a case um, in the Southern District of New York involving a guy named James Meyer. He was a studio assistant to Jasper Johns, the Jasper Johns' studio in Connecticut. Um, and he stole from John's a whole series of drawings. Um, and he, what was created in the course of that were these fake documents purporting to show that they were legitimate John's works that were going out. Because he worked in the studio because and he, he had access to these Because things. he worked in the studio. and He brought them to a dealer in Manhattan and ultimately they got sold to people. Um, and one of the stipulations that that the dealer placed on the purchasers of the works and apparently this came from Meyer himself, was you can't exhibit the work for a long time and you can't sell the work for a long time. Is that a red flag to a purchaser out there in the world? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. You might think it it obviously is, right? You can't show a work that you've purchased for several hundred thousand dollars or more. By the same token, it's common for artists to give works to studio assistants, and studio assistants are loath to turn around and sell them because it's Could arguably be an embarrassing. It's arguably an affront if some if, it was a if, gift if, if someone gave you a gift and then you turned around and sold it. So it's not obviously a red flag. Compare that, say, to the um, the Nodler situation, right? These are these. This is piece after piece after piece of of art that had never been exhibited before, and there was not a single solitary shred of paper in any of the um, massive documentary record for these particular artists of these works having been painted. And when you start to pile on the circumstances associated with all of these works, the mysterious Swiss-Mexican collector who could not be named, it starts. So the to, case can be made that it's too good to be true. It, the case can be made that it's still it, that it's too good to be true. And over time, you can raise the inference. If you're the civil plaintiffs in those cases, that the gallery was knowing, I can start to show that you have awareness of a high probability of effect. So this is the ostrich burying its head in the ground. Correct. There's there's special requirements for federal prosecutors to be able to make a case of, of conscious avoidance, but it is a substitute for knowledge in a federal criminal case. But what it what it also Makes clear is that in federal criminal cases, there are a wide variety of ways that prosecutors can charge these cases. So, Guaferro Rosales originally was, cha- was charged, obviously, separate from the tax related stuff for which he was originally charged, with engaging in a scheme to defraud, mail fraud and wire fraud, because the scheme was executed in part through, the ma- through mailings and wirings. But there are lots of other ways that federal prosecutors charge art-related crime. For example, one, ex- um, one crime that is frequently charged is the interstate transportation of stolen property. Jasper Johns' a studio assistant worked in Connecticut. That's where the works were. They were transported across state lines into New York where they were sold. That's an interstate transportation of stolen property um, offense. Maybe a good place for us to
1: start would be an overview, what are the types of illegal activities that are going on in the, this Ill- illegal art world? Um, there's the outright theft of works.
0: Um, people whose work is stolen.
1: So this is the Thomas Crown Affair,
0: breaking into museums, stealing paintings. Right, there's a painting that's been stolen from a museum in Boston. It's been, it's been a mystery for a couple dozen years as to how it left the museum in Boston. There's that, fair enough. Um, there's um, fraud in connection with transactions, and some of those are prosecuted criminally. The Goffier Rosales um, works. Some of those are also result in civil litigation. There was a lot of civil litigation concerning the Rosales works against the Nodler Gallery and other galleries um, and other pr- and individual participants. So here you're talking about
1: fraud in the sense that the seller is lying about.
0: The seller has misrepresented. Or is alleged to have misrepresented the provenance or the authenticity of a particular work. There's, there's been civil litigation in the last couple of years uh, about sort of representations that art dealers make about the value of a particular work. That's also had a bit of a, um, a difficult time. So the art is real in that
1: case, maybe the, the seller is, is puffing up the price. Is puffing up the price and saying the
0: fair value is X when in fact it's a lot less than X, the fair value. Um, There's litigation over, and prosecutions, as well as civil forfeiture, I'll talk about that in a second, relating to stolen works, works looted by the Nazis, um, or cultural property that's been taken in a violation of the law of some other country and then brought into the United States. Those are sort of the biggest things that are going on. There's also some authentication related litigation that's going on. So, typically, an artist allows a an entity a foundation his or her fa- artistic foundation the right to authenticate works and so that's an unusual area with, that may even involve antitrust issues it does so here's here's a perfect example and there's been litigation in the last few years involving the keith herring foundation and, and whether keith herring works were in fact of, authentic alexander calder the sculptor um Uh, and some others, Andy Warhol being the most prominent example, about whether a particular work is authentic. And an artist, say Andy Warhol or Alexander Calder or Keith Haring, will give the right effectively to a foundation to authenticate a work. Say whether this is a real work or it's not a real work. So the question is whether these gatekeepers, in a sense, are controlling the industry too much? Controlling the market for a particular artist's work. It's, it's hard to bring a contract claim because there's no real contract, um, or the contract is one-sided enough that it's the foundation that has all of the rights and the per- person who wants his or her work authenticated has virtually no rights. But there's been some litigation, and the, real, the only real litigation that's had any traction, and it's been of a, a bit of a mixed bag, um, has been this antitrust theory. So, for example, if you're the Warhol Foundation and you own a large corpus of Andy Warhol work, and someone comes to you and says, is this a real work or not? I believe it is, and here's why. And the foundation says, no, it's not. Um, And you disagree with that conclusion. Um, Then one of the kinds of things that's been alleged under these circumstances has been that the foundation is effectively controlling the market and engaging in an unreasonable restraint of trade. So is the
1: provocation always
0: a no, or is it sometimes, well, I don't even want to weigh in. You don't, sometimes you get a no, but most often you get a, we're not going to, going to authenticate that work. And that's the equivalent of a no. Or we're not going to put it into the catalogue resume. The catalogue for for an artist is typically the definitive, from the foundation's perspective, the definitive listing of all of the artist's works. So the argument there is, by keeping pieces out, they're making the art that they control more valuable. Correct, and it would be a very different story if, for example, the foundation didn't own any of the works because then it's a little bit di- more difficult to sustain the theory that they're engaging in unreasonable re- restraint of trade because there, there's, no, there's a lot less of an economic motivation for them to do that because they don't own any of the works. They, as you might say, have no skin in that game. So those cases have been a bit of a mixed bag, and I don't think it's been particularly successful for the people trying to all have their works authenticated over the wishes of the authenticating body. But the f- the threat of this kind of litigation has actually caused some authenticating bodies to stop authenticating works altogether, altogether because of the threat of litigation. Um, it's not worth it to them.
1: Well, we started with your with a roadmap of the different, let's say, silos of of art crime, and began with the last- art related. Legal issues, art-related legal issues. Why don't we go back and take a look at the other ones one at a time? The most obvious crime involving art it would be someone just going into a museum, uh, for example, with a stolen piece, the Scream that was
0: taken in Norway, going in, grabbing the art, and running away. Um, I, it's probably a lot more complex with grabbing the art and running away. Um, but I think there's a there's a sort of interesting phenomenon going on right now that relates to stolen art, and that. Um, arises out of these free ports. They're these places. There's one in Singapore. There's one in Geneva. They're basically giant warehouses. And you can hold it pretty much anything you want in them um, and trade without sort of a lot of scrutiny um, by the public or by authorities. I think a trend that will be uh, observable in the next like 10 or 15 years, probably starting already, is trade-based money laundering. It's a lot harder to move cash around these days. It's a lot harder to transfer money to places that you don't, and avoid scrutiny by the government. But if you have a work of art and it's in one box in a giant warehouse in Geneva, and you move it to another box in the same giant warehouse, virtually no one will know. There's not a single solitary shred of paper evidencing that transfer that anyone would have other than the person who sold it and the person who bought it.
1: One allegation is that some of this stolen art often finds its way into the organized crime world. You might use a very expensive piece of art perhaps as a a chip in in an agreement with another illegal crime. That's sort of what I mean when I say trade-based money laundering. Another kind of stolen art is what you're dealing with when it comes to Nazi plunder. So this is, we're talking from 33 to 45, the Nazi regime, in a
0: sense, was amassing a a huge art collection. Look, the Nazis had political views on which art was appropriate and which art wasn't appropriate, and it fit with their political views about, sort of, um, Jews. So this is degenerate art. So-called degenerate art, um, and that was What motivated a lot of the thefts and the forced sales um, were sort of political and moral views about Jews and the tastes of of Jewish art collectors and Jewish art dealers. And, you know, ultimately millions and millions, arguably billions of dollars of of work was destroyed. Um, And then a lot of it was stolen and um, forced to be sold. So this, maybe we can take a look, use this as an
1: example to take a look, at the actual legal structure. At what point does an arts ownership transfer. So if I buy you know as a a good-faith buyer, if I purchase a piece of art from a a dealer or seller, how am I to blame for a mistake they made previously?
0: So as a perfect example, someone buys um, a work that's been stolen but they have no reason to think that it's been stolen and um, they don't take. They are bona, what the law calls, or at least criminal forfeiture law calls, a bona fide purchaser for value. So a purchaser in good faith. In good faith, takes the work. Um, maybe they don't have good title, but there's certainly a question about whether the government can criminally forfeit the work from you because you're a bona fide purchaser for value, and there's a federal statute that allows you to interpose as a defense. To a forfeiture claim that you are a bona fide purchaser for value, but so that doesn't protect you from a third party suing, saying that they actually have the title. That may not protect you, and it may also not protect you if you ever wanted to sell it, and you may not be able to pass good title, even if someone can't take it from you. So there's a bit of a world between having good title and being being subject to at least criminal forfeiture, of the of a particular work, um, and. You might just be content to keep your pretty picture and never have to sell it again, um, as opposed to being able to sell it or bequeath it to your own heirs.
1: So in the example you gave, it was a private owner. A lot of times this plays out with the owner
0: being a museum. How does that work? I, I think the legal issues are similar or arguably the same, although sort of a museum might not, it might be harder for a museum to say that it is a bona fide purchaser for value because they're probably going to be charged with a higher level of knowledge, right? Because museums do the kinds of due diligence that a private collector may not necessarily do, right? A museum may not, a repre- may not take a representation that, oh, the provenance of a particular work is from X to Y, from Y to Z. They may question that. Um, whereas a private collector may say, oh, you tell me that the provenance is X to Y to Z. Okay, I believe you. So it, it all depends on who you are as to what, whether you would be could be a bona fide purchaser for value. Also, I think museums have a special responsibility as part of this system, and I think they largely behave um, in light of that special responsibility and, and charge themselves with sort of engaging in... Um, morally responsible behavior that, that a private individual may not feel compelled to engage in. And the they may also have a deeper pocket and be able to absorb losses in a different way. But this type of controversy
1: has, has been brought involving some of the most famous museums in the United States.
0: And, and, and abroad. So a perfect example was a work that was um, uh, taken from a family, a Jewish family in Vienna. It's called Portrait of Wally. And it came to the United States um, and was seized by the government off virtually off the wall of I believe MoMA, um, and I think it was 1999. Um, and there was a fight between the United States Attorney's Office and the Leopold Museum in Austria over whether the Leopold Museum um, took the work properly, it was a bona fide purchaser for value, I believe. And ultimately, it was resolved that the Leopold Museum would buy the work or pay the family who claimed that the work had been unlawfully taken from them and I think it was 19 million dollars. Why don't we talk about cultural heritage? Here we have another field of illegal art. It's been sort of uh, an area that at least the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan has been very active in, um, and that is the repatriation of cultural property, sort of works of art or historical significance or... Or even uh, fossils. Or even fossils, um, so significant in a way that's a, a bit different than a piece of art. Um, have found their way unlawfully to the United States or found their way out of a country unlawfully and into the United States and the government here has seized them, forfeited them, and then returned them to the, um, to the country at issue. Maybe
1: you give us an example. I'll
0: give you an, a, a perfect example of one that's a little less frequent. It's not so much art, but it's intriguing in other ways. So over um, in 2013 and 2014, there, was a, there were a series of fossils of dinosaurs that were repatriated to the government of Mongolia. Um, the most significant piece was a Tyrannosaurus bataar, um, and it was to be auctioned off in the United States at an auction house, I believe called Heritage Auctions, in, and I believe it was to play, take place in Texas. And the government sued to stop the auction, and ultimately, prosecuted the person who was largely responsible for bringing the works out of Mongolia into the United States. And the theory on which he was prosecuted was a species of, no pun intended, of um, smuggling. Um, so, without getting the appropriate approvals in Mongolia, he took out this these precious fossils and on, and and making false statements about the the nature of the material that was coming into the United States. So. On customs declarations, oftentimes the importer has to say what the things are, and if you lie on those forms, you may be committing a federal crime. Um, so it was um, a, a nearly complete and intact, I believe, Tyrannosaurus batar. Um There was pieces... Which were I, I don't know anything about, but I assume is extremely rare. It's a rare. big giant dinosaur, and having one that's largely intact is even more rare. Um, an Ankylosaurus, a Protoceratops, an Overraptor, and and he fancied himself an amateur paleontologist. And arguably, he was professional. I, I don't really know. But in any event, um, he was prosecuted, and a lot of the work, uh, a lot of the the fossils were um, forfeited, and they were ultimately returned to the government of Mongolia. And every once in a while, there is a peace return to Italy um, or Greece. countries from which a lot of ancient art um, uh, comes and in some instances comes under um, shady circumstances or comes illegally
1: so let's let's transition towards a a perhaps more well understood form of, of crime and that's actual forgeries so taking a painting
0: and replicating it and selling it as the original it's it's quite hard to do. You'd be shocked at how hard it is to do, and yet there seem to be people out there who do it with some um, some frequency and some success. I think there are some who don't necessarily represent that the work is the the original work, um, and that's more of a species of kind of a vanity thing. Just like you'd have a poster of a famous work on your art, you have a in essence a reproduction of a famous work on your wall, um, and there's really no there's arguably no harm in that. Um, However, of course, it's a, it's a much bigger deal when people are paying a lot of money for work that purports to be unoriginal an and, in fact, isn't.
1: So the crime, yeah, the, the major crime there is, is the fraud, is lying about, in this case, the authenticity
0: of the art. A- and that's, that's, a federal prosecutor would probably charge it in that way as either a mail fraud or a wire fraud, and all that takes is a scheme to defraud that's executed really through Either the ma- a mailing or a wiring, and it doesn't have to be. You don't have to send someone a letter with, containing a fraudulent statement in order for it to be mail fraud. You don't have to send someone a fax or an email containing a false statement. All that has to be to occur is a is a mailing or a wiring in connection with the scheme so or causing uh, correct um, or an email or causing a mailing or a wiring. So you may cause someone else to say a bank to send a bank statement.
1: So for those of you watching for MCLE Lee credit, the code for this course is 062515. Again, the code for this course is 062515. So as a former federal
0: prosecutor, what type of penalties are we talking about here? Um, you may be shocked to know that the statutory maximum term of imprisonment for um, mail fraud or wire fraud is high. It can be 20 years or it could be more under certain circumstances. Um, that's not what someone would get, and typically sentences um, are, are much lower than the statutory maximum. The statutory maximum for bank fraud is 30 years in prison. Rarely does someone get 30 years in prison for bank fraud. And typically what happens in fraud cases is that the driver of the sentence is the loss. So if someone buys a work of art, it's virtually valueless, they paid a million dollars for it, the loss would be a million dollars. And that's the starting point for the sentence, but not the end point. The loss is a key factor, the sophistication of the criminal offense is a key factor. But argument could be made, and I'm not making it because I personally
1: believe it, um, that a very wealthy individual is buying a beautiful piece of art, and at the end of the day, they end up with a beautiful piece of art. How is that such a big
0: issue that we need to put someone in jail for life or for 10 years? Um, I, I think this is sort of um, most people would differ that that person has been harmed. They've been harmed because they didn't get what they thought they were getting. Um, w- the, the wealth of the victim is, is should be irrelevant. Um, if um, you stole the life savings of a poor, um, lower-class person, Obviously, that's they have sustained a special form of harm, um, but stealing from the wealthy is just as just as criminal as as anything else, um, and they should be protected under the law just like anyone else. Um, but it does beg the question of sort of what is art if you have on your wall a reproduction and you think it's the real thing, and you live your whole life with the great satisfaction of being able to look at a beautiful picture. Um, have you been derived to some sort of ethereal? Um, metaphysical enjoyment by someone telling you that it's not the real thing. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but you've sure sustained some financial harm. Because you made it pay a million dollars for something and it ain't worth a million dollars. But it it certainly begs the question of what does it mean to be art? Um, and I'll give you a perfect example. There was a um, someone who was a founder, he operated a foundry in, in Queens named Brian Ramnerine and he casted works of art for Jasper Johns, among others. So Jasper Johns has been involved, his work has been involved in all kinds of frauds. Uh, there's the there's, there's theft case and this case um, and, and I imagine there have been others, I just don't can't think of any off the top of my head, but the, these two are relatively recent. Um, Ramnerine ultimately kept the mold to be able to make casts of some works of art and sold, in essence, some unauthorized casts. So he was making artwork, so this is the unauthorized art. It is the unauthorized art, um, and apparently the federal judge who sentenced him did not sort of believe you um, because Brian Ramnery got sentenced to 30 months in prison, Um, so for two and a half years of in jail. Now, to be be fair, um, he was a recidivist, he had done this before. And he'd also done this with other artists for whom he had cast works. Um, so uh, he was Robert supposed Indiana. to destroy these, these uh, moldings. I don't know if he was supposed to destroy the... Um, certainly not use them. But certainly not use them to create unauthorized works. Um, and certainly not sell them without the knowledge of the artists. So whether he kept the, the casts un- unlawfully or not, for sure making unauthorized casts and then selling them as the real thing. That's a crime, or can be charged as a crime, and it was. And he went to he's he went he was sentenced to thirty months in prison. So unauthorized art is a significant um, uh, significant issue in some recent cases. So why don't we take a glimpse into the future? We're not going to hold
1: you accountable on this. Fair enough. But how do you see technology affecting this issue? Our artists, our forgers, excuse me look going to become more effective in hiding their crime, or is the detection end more likely to be improving?
0: I think it's gonna be a bit of a race into the future and by the forgers and then the people who are trying to detect them. Um, the technology is pretty good now about detecting sort of what paint was used and um, some of the technical aspects behind a particular painting. But there's so much emotion wrapped up in whether a piece of art is real or not, or authentic or not, um, that I wonder whether technology is not going to change that. A person's relationship with a work of art, including a person who's who's using um, historical um, or uh, historical techniques or connoisseurship in order to determine whether a, a work is authentic. Um, there's there's a lot less objectivity to that endeavor than one might think um, and the Rosales case is a perfect example there were people who believed that those works were authentic um, and experts and and who were experts in either the historical aspect of the works of Rothko and de Kooning and Motherwell um, and Pollock or experts in the connoisseurship of those um, uh, artists who were truly convinced that they were in fact authentic. And so that the historical, the emotional, the visceral reactions that people have to works of art make me think that this is not simply a problem that's going to be solved by technology. Um, Answering the question may be advanced by technology, but there may be those who continue to discount the value of the technical in favor of the historical and the connoisseurship as techniques to authenticate work. So your guess is as good as mine.
1: Well, we'll be taking note, and Dan Levy, thank you so much for joining us and walking us through this complex issue. Thank you for having me.
0: For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksonLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, You can enter your confirmation code at TalksonLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.